let's get going to it's gonna kind of jump right in um i was gone last week and uh so i uh i had prepared the the uh, topic we're going to talk about today although i found it very very difficult i spent um now well, good over half my life now kind of studying and thinking about these two topics in depth politics and poverty and so i found that uh my notes were getting way too unmanageable and so i want to just pull directly from scripture today and then i want to spend most of our time kind of in discussion um which i'm going to not do just at the end but break up after each of these um two points that, that i have but for now we're going to read through second kings uh, actually someone else pull up second kings and uh and i'll pull up isaiah 30 and that way we can read them right next to each other so second kings and then Isaiah uh, 30. We're continuing along with uh, our reading of Isaiah, talking about how to think about things uh, from the context of hope and um, in, in the midst of tragedy. And if you're just joining us, or if you need the pressure, um, we probably need to have everybody muted, if you will, other than if you're reading, guys. I don't know how to mute all still. I haven't quite figured out that. There we go. Someone did it for me. Um, so if, you, if you're kind of just catching on uh, or need a refresher, um, Isaiah is a really interesting passage. We're going to get the um, sort of first of the, the two exiles. The northern kingdom is just on the verge of being exiled for a couple hundred year period. And um, still the southern kingdom is about 170 years off. But, uh, you know, Isaiah is really kind of like God's judgment of these two nations and, uh, and talking to them about why it is that they're about to go into exile. And the northern kingdom is a little bit ahead of the, the southern kingdom. And uh, so Israel versus Judah. And we'll talk a little bit about why that is today. If you remember the principle from a couple weeks back, it was, you know, uh, when we don't listen. Actually, I don't even remember what the principle was. I think it's when we don't listen to God um you know we listen to others something like that yeah i'm pretty sure that's that's a good one um we're gonna continue that on today with one another principle that seems very similar but i'm gonna try to distinguish them a little bit even though they're a slight bit confusing and that's that when we don't seek help from god uh, we seek help from the wrong people so we're drawing out principles uh that help us deal with tragedy and help us you know have hope in the midst uh, of that tragedy uh, so, yeah, so let's read these. Uh, does someone have Second uh, Kings 17, 1 through 6? I can read it. Okay, go for it. Just to make sure, Second Kings 17, 1 through 6. Yes. Okay. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Ahashia, the son of Ella, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the king of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, and he had sent messengers to So king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the arbor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. I know. Reading these is, is difficult. Uh, <laughs> just go with it. You know, use whatever name feels right to you. 
Um, so what's happening here is remember Ahaz was the first king we talked about. Ahaz was the one that basically kind of kept his options open. He, um, he sort of like, you know, uh, was trying to or pretending to listen to God. And the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, test God. He says, oh, no, no, I don't want to test God. Well, he ends up uh, fearing the northern kingdom and Syria and, uh, and invites the, uh, the Assyrians in. And that leads to the Assyrians actually taking over parts of the northern kingdom. And then so Hosea, years later, basically says, you know what? I'm tired of being a vassal state or like a you know, puppet state. So I'm going to, uh, rather than call in help from God, I'm going to try to find out if Egypt is willing to help. They seem powerful. They seem good. So he stops paying uh, the Assyrian king and then goes to Egypt for help. And that's kind of where we pick up on this story. This uh, decision is ultimately going to lead into the full exile of the northern kingdom. So rather than just being a puppet state, now they're basically going to be picked up, taken out, from their land and then resettled in Assyrian lands and Assyrians will come and settle in uh, to uh, Israelite lands. Okay, so that's kind of where we're at with that. Um, and so, yeah, here we go. Isaiah 30. So woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not my plan. Talking about Hosea uh, executing the plan to uh, invite uh, Egypt um, to, uh, you know, uh, fight against the Assyrians. And make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt your humiliation. For their princes are at zone, and their ambassadors arrive at Hanes. Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. The idea here is basically that Egypt is like, what exactly do you have to give to us? We're a powerful nation. How does this make sense for us to fight for you when Assyria so far, you know, hasn't had any problems with us? And so basically, there's no real sense of what happens here other than Egypt doesn't lift a finger. So this, um, you know, help that uh, Israel seeks, they don't get it, and which ultimately leads to them being, you know, fully exiled. All right. So the oracle concerning the beast of the Negev through a land distant in anguish from where come lion and lion, lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent. They carry the riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on camel's humps to a people who cannot profit them. Even Egypt, those help is vain and empty. Therefore, I've called her the Rahab who has been exterminated. There's a reference there if you want to look it up to Rahab the prostitute. It's kind of a powerful insult to them. They go write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll, that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people, all sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us only pleasant words, prophecy illusions. Get out of the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall, when collapse comes suddenly and in an instant, whose collapse is like smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a sherd will not be found among its pieces, to take fire from a hurt or to scoop water from a cistern. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. 
but you were not willing. And he kind of goes on to talk about how, you know, they continue to, to look at uh, Egypt as a, a powerful nation. The point here is simply that, um, you know, they trusted in the help of Egypt and, and, and the whole situation was basically a disgrace and a shame for them because they trusted in the wrong you know, source. They didn't trust in God. They trusted in this other nation. And of course, there's an irony in all of this. Um, that, you know, they're going to go trust Egypt, the very nation that they had been celebrating for hundreds of years, um, you know, uh, uh, being rescued from by God himself. Of course, that's kind of like a, you know, a side point here. But the real question, I think, and the question for us is sort of why did they go about trusting Egypt? And I think the scripture here sort of gives us two clues into that. Number one, they were tired of hearing God's challenging news tired of hearing that they had to change their ways, change their oppression, uh, change all of these things that they had trusted in that really uh, weren't God vindicated. They weren't God's way uh, for them um, to continue living in his land. The second is they were just sort of impressed with Egypt. Uh, Egypt was an up and coming power again. Um, you know, they had these swift horses, as it goes on to say in 16 and 17, and they just have a lot of might. And so these two things I think we can apply to, well, um, a million different topics, but I want to apply them, um, you know, to uh, this, this understanding in our society of politics and poverty, all right? So Egypt was not helpful, but the people got tired of listening to tough love, so they wanted something exciting and quick. And so this is where we got the principle to, we don't seek help from God, we seek help from the wrong people. And I want you to think about this as a spectrum. This is very hard, I think, to picture. I probably should have drawn it up. But at any given time, and, and the small groups that have been doing the sermon series, they've talked about this, although the questions this last week were a doozy. I'm so glad that I'm now actually leading a small group so that I can, um, you know, uh, look into my own questions and realize how bad they are sometimes. Uh, that's very good. Um, that could be another ex example or principle in, it, in and of itself. Anyway, so the... I think what we see in Ahaz, and the scripture kind of talks about that the, the northern kingdom is worse off than the southern kingdom. And I think one of the reasons they are worse off is because at least the, the southern kingdom kind of listens to God some still. They at least consult him like Ahaz did at the beginning of the story. Well, the northern kingdom is not only listening to God anymore. They're not even seeking his help. And I think if we see ourselves sort of on a spectrum uh, of kind of where we're at in terms of listening and seeking God's help, if you think about it on one end of the spectrum, you know, we're sort of, you know, not at all seeking God's help. And on the other end, we're fully seeking God's help. Then if you think about the kind of intermediary positions, we can be sort of listening to God, but not really seeking his help. Or we can be fully listening to God, but still not really fully seeking his help. And so I think what this, this principle tries to convince us of is like James 1 talks about, you know, we hear the word, but not do it. Just because we listen to God or sort of half listen to God, there's still an, an additional step that goes into actually seeking his help and making um, his help, his guidance, sort of the direction that we go in. It's not just enough to listen to his instruction, to know it well. Uh, we've got to go beyond that to actually seek his help. And I think that's far more difficult. Many of us know what God's saying. We've listened to the words that he spoke. We've listened to the words that people have spoken into our lives through the Holy Spirit. But we have often not, in our situations of dire need or situations of confusion, really sought God's help and then received it uh, and expected to receive it and can look back and say, man, God really helped in this, this issue. 
Uh, for many of us, we sort of have this cultural and even religious idea that God is not active anymore in our society, and his actions are sort of really quiet, behind the scenes, super spiritual, kingdom of God, individual people actions, as if he doesn't care uh, about the nations anymore. And that's a really um, unscriptural way of thinking about God working. He may not covenant anymore with one specific nation, but that's a good thing. <laughs> the whole point of the covenant with one nation was to bless all the nations. And God is just as active uh, as he ever was in the Old Testament, moving the pieces uh, around in our world, in our societies, in our cities uh, for the good of um, his kingdom and to move that forward. And so I think that's really, you know, a part of what this looks like to be seeking God's help is that we're not pretending like God is just sort of looking and, and waiting for heaven to appear. He's actually still very much at work in the very things that we think are important and that we're often doing on our own. And rather than joining God in those, we tend to just do it uh, and try to justify it by saying, well, you know, God wants this, so we better go out and work uh, as if it depends on us. So principle two, when we don't seek help from God, we seek help from the wrong people. So this first thing here is just tough news. Uh, one of the first things that I think uh, when we look at the issue of poverty in our society is, and for those of you who got, you know, you did the small groups, you got some of that data. Pretty much if you're under the poverty line or even in the working class, <laughs> whether you're Republican or Democrat, you, you believe that um, part of the reason you're in the spot you're in is because you don't have enough access to resources, right? The only real group that sort of believes that people are where they're at because they're sort of lazy or they're not working hard are wealthy Republicans. <laughs> now, that's just, again, polls, okay? So uh, there could be sort of deep-seated, you know, um, I don't know, beliefs uh, that we're not teasing out in these polls. But this idea that I think the particularly conservative and wealthy conservatives have perpetuated of the welfare mentality and the welfare mentality being or the victim mentality being that people are in the spot that they're in because they've chosen it. They've gotten used to it. They've been enabled to be in that spot. Uh, to me, doesn't really mesh well with the realities of the people that I interact with on a daily and week to week basis. Now, that's not to say that there aren't a subsection of people in our society who are poor who very well uh, are kind of addicted to being poor. Um, I spent some time talking with a gentleman just this morning, which is funny how that kind of works, who is asking me for money as he usually does. And it's just a hard situation because he's been on the streets for about 14 years of his life. And he's gotten so used to the streets. He's gotten so used to living from one place to the next, sometimes having housing, sometimes not. And I try not to ever give him direct cash, pay for hotels, pay for phone bills. Um, but this morning, he wanted direct cash through Cash App. And it's tough. I mean, these situations come up, and sometimes I'll do it anyway. But I don't want to support his marijuana habit, which I think is, is partly uh, justified in the sense that he's got a lot of anxiety and mental health issues. But also sort of one of the things that's keeping him from being able to hold a steady job. So it's just this kind of like, how do you handle a situation like that of someone who's kind of gotten used to this um, and gets very upset when I'm not willing to give him, <laughs> give him money, although we've had some really good conversations. Um, and I've learned in the past to try to set steps for him. Like, so this most recent step we've been on for almost two and a half years now 
has been get a license, then I'll get you a car. You get a license, I'll get you a car. And it's amazing how many impediments he has and getting to watch him um, face these to just even get a license uh, from something as simple as doesn't have a birth certificate. You know, he got kicked out of the house when he was 15, has no contact with his parents. They won't you know, do anything for him. And so trying to get a birth certificate for him is hard. Trying to have a place of residence. I mean, I, don't, I can't tell you how many phone calls I get. Uh, people thinking I'm this man, even though I am, you would, let's just say the name wouldn't really fit. There we go. And uh, so, you know, there's just some impediments there. But trying to deal with the situation is very difficult. I say all this to say that while the welfare mentality and victim mentality is certainly present, it's often portrayed as a much bigger thing than it is, so as to allow people to excuse themselves for feeling bad. Number one, that this exists, and two, that anything that they're doing may actually be contributing to the fact that people are poor in our society. And yet the scripture is very clear, at least in um, Isaiah, that the reason people were rich was because of their oppression of the poor. And I want to draw an analogy here that I think is very important, and that is that this idea that the poor are poor because of their own choice and because they won't hear sort of the tough news of, you know, you've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and really work harder and take advantage of these opportunities, to me is very much like the rich mentality of um, believing that people are um, poor because of their own choice because it's an inability to challenge their own thinking on the issue. So the welfare mentality in my mind, or at least the basis of that mentality, which is I don't want to hear tough news, I don't want to have to make any life changes, to me, ironically, is more common in rich uh, conservative circles than it is in poorer um, uh, circles. In fact, I think poor people tend to actually work hard and have a tougher life and have to make life changes uh, much more often than people who are pretty wealthy and can kind of rest in their wealth and pretend as if their wealth has nothing to do uh, with people who are oppressed. So I'm going to sort of turn that up on its head. Um, I believe those things are, uh, are very, very um, connected. So what do we do about that? Well, um, I think that the thing that we've all got to accept when it comes to um, the topic of poverty or politics is are we willing to sort of challenge our thinking on what it is we believe and what it is that we, um, you know, have experienced? Are we, or, or are we really ultimately wanting to hear the pleasant visions, the prophecy illusions as, as um, you know, um, Isaiah is saying here in Isaiah 30? So are we willing to really hear the tough, news and and how ultimately um, whatever situation we're in is going to require us to make some life changes uh, if we're going to um, you know really pay attention to what it is that God wants us to do whether that's we're poor and we're going to have to make some tough decisions some decisions that won't allow us to slip into the sort of victim mentality or whether we're fairly wealthy and are going to have to make some really tough decisions about uh, how to use that wealth First of all, not to, you know, not to link it to any kind of oppression, but second of all, uh, to actually assist and help in turning the tide in our society 
uh, of people being you know, financially oppressed. And just as a side note, um, I will tell you that we live in one of the most um, unequal times in, uh, in probably the last hundred years of our society. Our wealth is far more concentrated at the top than it has been since really like the 1930s, 1940s. Um, and, uh, and so we just have a ton of people on the bottom and, uh, and a lot of people concentrate or a few people concentrated at the very top. And so this idea of somewhat sort of like a happy middle that many of us tend to think we're in, uh, doesn't exist like it existed 30 or 40 years ago. And so that ought to be a challenge to some of us who tend to kind of check out of this conversation because we're like, ah, oh, we're in the middle, you know, we've had poor days. Uh, and you know, we feel good now. Now you're pretty much either at the bottom or you're pretty close to the top. Uh, and, uh, we can talk about that a little bit at the end if you want some uh, kind of a better understanding of that. So this tough news, I want you guys to spend about 10 minutes and I want you to kind of think through a really challenging question in verse 15 of this passage, which is one that you ought to reflect on and think through. Um, what does it look like to start with repentance? and rest in response to some of these issues of politics and poverty, all right? Because this is what, what God is saying here in response to they're not wanting to hear tough things and they're wanting to hear new uh, and exciting news. He says, in rest and repentance is your salvation. So without giving you really much in the way of explanation, although I'll give you a little anecdote from this morning, uh, I want you to think through, and we'll post that up, um, what does it look like to start with repentance and rest in response to politics and poverty? Okay, I'm just pulling this straight out of the scripture, not giving you much context other than the context of Isaiah. Uh, what does it look like to start with repentance and rest in response to politics and poverty? So again, to give you an anecdote of this, this morning I was at Home Depot getting some wood, and of course the um, mask thing went into effect yesterday and this couple kind of smirkishly smiling i don't know holding hands came into home depot obviously flaunting that they're not going to be wearing masks a security guard comes up to them tries to offer them a mask they just blow them off completely and in my mind i'm thinking and literally my body turns toward to go tell them thanks a lot for making all of us you know really unsafe and then the thought dawned on me that you know I didn't start wearing a mask until it was mandated. I was not one of those, you know, oh, I'm going to wear a mask and be really safe. And so what, what, you know, what do I have to really say uh, about that? And then that thought, which was at least somewhat humble, quickly turned into, you know what? I'm really glad a lot of people are going to give them stuff about this. And so they're already going to have it hard enough. You could just tell they were defensive walking and ready for, you know, statements about it. And that's two different ways of thinking about it. One is sort of like, I'm glad they're going to get what's theirs. Um, and the other was sort of like, you know what? Do I really have a, I mean, they may be worse than me because they're flaunting this whole, you know, mask thing, but I'm not a whole lot better considering, uh, you know, I didn't do anything until I was actually mandated and, and required to. And so to me, that's a part example, um, not so much related to poverty, but politics uh, of actually starting with sort of repentance and, uh, and even a sense of rest, allowing this situation to sort of, you know, take shape and me not having to be the person who publicly shames people like on the Denton Downtowners uh, Facebook page uh, for not wearing masks. Uh, I've seen so many pictures of people just shaming people for not wearing masks. Uh, and then 
I one the other day was this lady who talked to the manager, three different managers. She said, Tell me, why aren't you enforcing masks? I'm like, are you really helping the situation? These poor managers are now having to get flack from both people who are wearing masks and people who aren't wearing masks. Like, uh, oh my gosh. Anyway, so the question, what does it look like to start with repentance and rest in response to politics and poverty? You have 10 minutes. We'll break up into random groups. We'll put those questions uh, in your little chat room thing. I say we as if I'm going to do anything. I don't know how to do those things, but hopefully people listening, they will. Uh, let's do groups of probably like uh, three or four, and then we'll come back together in about 10 minutes. Brad, was there a specific verse? Yeah, it's verse 15 of Isaiah 30. Sorry. But I mean, it basically just says exactly what that prompt says. It says, uh, you know, in repentance and rest is your salvation. So, yeah. All right. 10 minutes. Let's do it. All right, let's continue on. This one will be a little bit shorter of a point. I do want to make a just a quick statement, though, that I think is important. You know, when we start with repentance and rest, there's an understanding that we don't know the answers and that God is working. And that can ultimately lead to sort of changing our life. Uh, and when God works, he changes people's lives. And rather than us working to try and change other people's lives, which we won't do, uh, and in the process won't change our own, um, the spirit working is, is ultimately going to do exactly that. It's going to actually change people's hearts and minds. And, uh, and so we get life change um, out of hearing that tough news in the same way the parent giving tough news and tough love uh, ultimately cares much more uh, about their um, child's well-being. You know, the second point I wanted to make here was just that we like impressive and new stuff. Um, sort of the faddish change. Um, I love millennial generation. Uh, if for nothing else other than most of you really, really, really care about change. Um, but our greatest strength can be our greatest weakness, as Ronnie often says. And sometimes we sacrifice lasting change for quick fixes and, um, you know, uh, kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, month long. Um, attempts to try to change something that uh, will be almost impossible to change. When Jesus says, you'll always have the poor with you, I don't think he was trying to denigrate them. Uh, what he was trying to do was point out that uh, Judas, the zealot, didn't really care about the poor. He just cared about telling Jesus that that lady shouldn't have performed uh, poured that expensive perfume on his feet. <laughs> and the idea was that uh, in corrupt societies, which is every society that will ever exist, they'll always have an imbalance of resources and that there will always be a variety of opportunities to give to the poor and care for the poor, but there will be no fix by just throwing money, um, you know, uh, at those issues. And so, you know, I, I kind of come into that with this, this same sort of thinking, you know, we have this kind of fattish obsession uh, with quick change. Uh, which is often useless. Uh, if it's not, not quick for us, or we can't sort of hold the attention there. And so we move from one thing to the next. Uh, it, again, you just look at, and I'm, I'm, I hate to be referencing this because there's a lot of good things that come out of it as well, but somehow someone invited me to the Denton Downtowners uh, Facebook page. And I just like, literally, we went from Black Lives Matter to mask enforcement within the time of a week. And all the same people are, are just saying all the basic same <laughs> stuff. Like it's their new thing that they're all mad at everybody about and that they're going to fight about one side to the other. 
Um, and it just reminds me of just how faddish our obsession with things become. You know, one of the things that I really appreciate in Willie um, over the years, you know, since uh, I moved here back in 20, um, 2010, I've known him since that, you know, the entire time. And to watch how his life has changed as a result of his uh, pursuit of getting the Confederate statue removed is really amazing. He has learned a lot about himself and particularly has um, heard a lot from God on how he should handle that from being very angry at the beginning <laughs> to basically at one point in the, in the middle of the Denton County Commissioner's Court, uh, apologizing for his anger and praying for each one of them individually. Um, but that's the thing that we're talking about. He's not only given his life to something, which it's not like once he was done, he was like, all right, I can retire. He's on to the next thing. I, I assure you, he even said it in his little video if you watched it. Um, but he, his life has changed uh, before God as a result of that sort of long suffering and long pursuit of something that a lot of people thought was really ins insignificant until it finally came down. And of course, now everybody loves to talk about how great Willie is. Um, but I think that's the, that kind of um, staying power sticking that some of us, um, really all of us, need to kind of be engaged in, particularly in the topic of politics or poverty. Nothing in either one of those things changes fast. It just doesn't. Um, and it's not going to. There's such systemic issues um, and, uh, and issues that require so much nuance and thinking uh, that often if we focus on it for a month or two months, nothing will really change. And I want to make a quick note here that I'm not talking about some of the things that are happening with the Black Lives Matter movement, because I do think there are some quick changes that need to be happening and that are happening, and that that tends to move forward in major advances. But with the issues of politics and poverty, uh, things are much more slow, uh, I think. And uh, yeah, so uh, we're, we're kind of faddish, uh, and, and we're obsessed with these fads, uh, which ultimately end up being useless in the same way that seeking help from Egypt was useless for the Northern Kingdom. We want to be on the right side of the argument, uh, but really can't actually pick anything to be involved in for very long. <laughs> so we just sort of let the talking do the walking uh, and just talk about stuff and feel like we're fairly involved. But I would encourage you, if you really want to make a difference in politics or in poverty, you're going to have to stick with something uh, for some time, um, because otherwise it's really not going to happen. And for those of us who uh, you know, kind of have worked in and around areas uh, either involving politics or poverty, you know, we know it's very, very easy um, to kind of sign on to something and then move apart, but that the real work comes from years and decades of actually doing work uh, that, that assists and helps people. And, and that's kind of thinking more of an, at an organizational level, but there's also plenty of, um, of truth to that when it comes to dealing with people individually. The guy that I mentioned this morning, I've known him since he was uh, 21. And so I've known him for about 10 years now, and that's the relationship has stayed very much the same. <laughs> and trying to figure out how to get him off the streets is very, very tough. It racks my brain, and I'm still working hard to try to figure out what uh, and how I ought to, uh, to manage that relationship better. Uh, anyway, um, so a couple kind of sub points here. You know, liberalism and conservatism are, are sort of often mindless talking points, they give us the fuel to become obsessed for a little while because there's so many points that we can just sort of regurgitate and talk through. 
And I think people who tend to really be involved deeply in uh, politics and poverty, and I would say maybe more poverty because I don't have too big of an experience in politics, have a much more nuanced and I would dare say moderate view on some of these things uh, because they realize how much um, the sort of political talking points are simply just that, they're talking points. They don't really work. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this, and I could be wrong here, so just tell me if I'm wrong. Back about three years ago, um, McKinney, who, <laughs> uh, McKinney's great, but they have the second to lowest poverty rate in the entire Northern Dallas area after Frisco, decided they were going to do box homes for poor people, like storage homes, back when storage homes were a really big, cool thing. And to date, three years later, I believe that nothing has been done. I think they still have one model home um, and the con some concrete was poured somewhere back last October and November. And I mean, this is a pretty small uh, development. It's only for 35 people. And somehow in three years, they haven't been able to get their box home community, Cotton Grove, up and running. And there's just sort of a laughable, um, to me, a laughable example of how a rich city tries to sort of placate both liberal, if there are liberals in McKinney, um, and Republicans by putting up this box community, which seems new and exciting, and there's pictures, and everybody puts it in the news, and literally nothing has happened in three months, uh, when there's probably people in McKinney who could fund it, uh, you know, with just a little bit out of their savings account. But it's these kinds of things, these sort of quick, um, you know, impressive, faddish things that we often, um, I think, can kind of get... Um, I don't know, just distracted by it. And it's the day in, day out of really assisting and helping uh, and the nuance of these things that, uh, that are ultimately going to be much stronger methods of changing the things that we want to see changed. So um, the next question for you, the second part of verse 15 um, was in quietness and in trust is your strength. So I think definitely there's sort of a parallelism here uh, in some ways the rest and repentance is kind of related to this quietness and trust. But I just want to ask you the exact same question. And if you want to continue on your conversation from last time, that's great too. Um, but in quietness and trust is your strength. So what does it look like to start with quietness and trust in response to politics and poverty? Um, and, um, you know, I would just give you a note that, to be careful about talking about prayer. Um, if you do use the word prayer, maybe you want to define that because often prayer can be for Christians sort of a, a um, I don't know, like, oh, I did that. And then I'm just going to sort of wait on God, like an excuse for inaction. And so if you are going to talk about prayer or prayer, I would, I would, I would think you might want to define exactly what you are praying for. Because as William Bloom says, you know, when we pray for something, hopefully we actually live that out in the day that we're, we prayed it. And I think that's probably kind of a high standard for what our prayer life ought to look like. So in quietness and trust is your strength. What is it like to start with quietness and trust in response to uh, politics and in poverty? So we'll do that one um, and then come back. And if you have any final challenges or ideas, you can share with everyone. That'd be great. See you in 10. All right, guys, let's take a, a moment. If you have something you want to share, challenge, encourage, question you have, uh, we'll take probably five minutes here and then uh, and then end up. I know this wasn't incredibly practical like we uh, have been trying to do somewhat in the past, but uh, this idea of poverty and politics is pretty pretty tough. The um, 
The last two that we'll talk about are um, the political or, or uh, police state, talking about sort of uh, dictatorships and totalitarianism government, and then um, pandemics and, uh, and other sort of natural disaster type stuff. Um, so those will be a little bit uh, different in terms of their direction. So keep reading with us, pay attention. Yeah, questions, comments, or uh, challenges to our, uh, our church in this time. I have a question. Um, it was, you kind of mentioned something about um, basically with God, we need to, um, basically we need to, um, oh, what'd you say? It was basically um, realized that God is still working in our society um, and in our cities, our neighborhoods and things like that. Um, I guess regarding that point, what ways have you um, seen that working despite um, just so many, it seems like these days we face like more issues just because of the power of connectivity and how we're just connected to everything and there's just we have instant um access to every issue that everyone has ever faced through the internet um oh wait Justin, like, what are you asking specifically i'm now i'm losing you a little bit um basic uh basically like regarding all that how do you see god working despite all the issues that we face today like how do you see him working in our society still despite having to deal with all of that yeah, well, if you want just a quick thought about from my perspective, I think one, you know, the idea that, uh, I mean, just this whole Black Lives Matter movement is very important. And the idea of justice um, is, as I think, a, a clear winner, an obvious one. Uh, I think another one is that when you really look through some of the um, uh, kind of political um, uh, perspectives, and if even just the Pew Research stuff that I sent out to the small groups, people are becoming more moderate, not more um, partisan uh, in a lot of their viewpoint. And that's actually probably a pretty good thing. Uh, you know, when you cut off the head of a snake, its body still wriggles. And that's kind of scary, right? So that's a terrible analogy. Um, Troy made me cut off the head of a snake the other day. And I'm still very mad about it because it was just a, a nice, sweet river snake. Uh, but he convinced me it was poisonous. So now every time I see one, I pick it up and I bring it either to Chelsea or Troy. So I've done that twice now um, just to pay them back for anyway. Uh, so if the, I don't mind, I like when you brought that snake inside so I could pet it. Anyway. So uh, you better the, make sure it's not poisonous. You actually uh, didn't get bit once. You're going to regret it. Yeah, no, it's pretty easy to tell the difference between poison snake and one that's not. Uh, so anyway, the, uh, you know, with some of what's going on, I think while the voices are louder than ever, some of that's just the wriggling of the body. Uh, and, um, and that's, that's a good thing. The voices are loud and our nation maybe seems more divisive than ever, but I think on a lot of issues, it's actually, uh, quite a bit more moderate than in the past. Um, and to me, that's a, that's a good sign, not a bad sign. So I could go on, but that would take up too much time to list all the things that I think at a, a global scale. Um, God is doing in our society. So any other challenges, questions, thoughts uh, that you want to give to the, the church? Well, Brad, I just appreciate you sharing about, um, you know, prayer wasn't the answer for the second one in and of itself. And that, you know, if and when I pray, I need to think about what I'm going to act on as a result of my prayer. Um, 
that definitely gives me a lot to think about. Good. Yeah, I mean, I think we've been on some of these forums where Christians have gotten in and said, only God can do this, only God can help. And then, you know, they offer no real guidance into how God is working. And you're thinking, okay, well, that's a great idea. But God is specifically works and does specific things, just like he did in the Old Testament, just like he does through Jesus. So if you don't really have any offer of how you see God's working in these areas, then that's just a quaint idea that often for a lot of people gets them off the hook of actually doing anything. To be the last thing I think that God wants us to do is sit back and pretend like by just, you know, invoking his name and doing nothing that we're somehow doing what he wants us to do. Um, uh, hey, Brad, I have something real quick. Yeah. Um, I do think like that is a great point. I haven't like for sure. I myself have fallen into that just like praying and then not doing anything. Um, I do think with that absolutely like keep that but uh as an encouragement like i know you didn't say i don't i know you don't mean it at all but um we shouldn't discredit prayer like in of itself like that is a direct communication with god almighty who is holds everything in his hands and so whenever you do pray if anything whenever you think of prayer give it more weight and I think that that's what like Brad you're like getting at is like act on it because it's such a powerful thing um yeah. and so still continue to pray with every moment of every day don't let that be the only thing you do but actually let it be the first thing you do and then do more with that yeah, yeah, the idea of rest, uh, you know, that's the whole idea of this Isaiah 15 passage, which I think you could um, could spend some time just looking at. I mean, ultimately, when he talks about rest and quietness, the idea is about talking and trusting God, not even just talking, but uh, listening to uh, and, and realizing, uh, you know, who he is. But at the same time, he mixes both repentance, um, you know, and, uh, and trust. And those things very much are action-oriented things. And, uh, you know, it's always been a tendency among humans to either sit back and be lazy and do nothing or to do everything on their own. It's the Martha, you know, Mary kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and God's for neither, neither of us. Uh, we work, um, you know, knowing that it depends on him, uh, certainly. And we pray that way too. And for our generation in particular, prayer is something that, uh, pretty tough to do because we're pretty, um, just can't sit down for long enough. Some of us don't even really see God as very uh, approachable. Um, and so the prayer aspect of that is never something to downplay, particularly for, you know, our generation. You know, I kind of want to... Oh, go ahead. Uh, oh, we're actually out of time, so no more. No, uh, no, so, Brad. No, yeah. no. Because what your dad is... You knew it was me saying something, so that's why you said that. I want to say one thing. Okay. And that is sometimes you have nothing but prayer because you have no control yeah. And there's no action that you can take to change a situation, but prayer is powerful, and that prayer can God can work different things out to change it. Um, so don't exclude that. Yep, you're right. It's a you're right. We're I'm all on board for that. So change takes time and effort, um, but I think most importantly in all this, it's a self change. Uh, that were that that often comes about when God begins to work and the Holy Spirit begins to work. We can't possibly just sit by and not be changed as a result of of interacting with God. 
So I just encourage you to you know, really kind of think through this. What does it look like that quietness and trust uh, is our strength, an actual strength, and that repentance um, and, uh, and rest is actually our salvation um, in dealing with some... Brad, I think that... Sorry, I think that that is like a huge key point that I would love for you to reiterate is that it's not just that we're praying for God to change other people and to help them to be better and help them to be more loving. It's, it is that self-change, that, that like repentance. God, where are you changing me? Like, where am I needing uh, your grace? And where am I needing to be like made better by you? I just think that's a big point that I wanted to reiterate. And I'm comfortable interrupting you. Uh, uh, is there anybody else in my family here that would like to interrupt <laughs> uh, or add something? Judy? I don't know. I can't think of anyone. No, no. She's already done that. She's already shared. So I think I've got everyone in my family covered. I think Great. so. I can call yeah, Jared. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, again, this is an opportunity for us to uh, be a part of real and kind of lasting change and, and not just the quick um useless you know kind of change that is focused on changing everyone else and not on us and so i'd encourage you as we think through this uh that is our hope and tragedy uh that god works and that we are not just sort of subject to these faddish um i've got to change everybody else around me uh kind of mentality that i think uh it's easy to buy into uh that we're being changed and uh, that we get the power to actually be a part of something that's real and lasting and for us to really strive towards that uh, and either not sit back as if, you know, it's all going to happen without us or um, dive right in as if, you know, it will only happen, uh, you know, with our very important work and our important ideas. So I'll leave you with that. Thank you guys very much uh, for being here next week. We'll, uh, we'll move in on in Isaiah. It's all kind of written out for you. Um, moving on to another principle and, uh, and then talking about uh, police state. So if you want to do a little research, That'd be helpful because a lot of us probably don't have a lot of, of experience um, with what it's like living in a police state um, kind of environment. And I'm not talking about corrupt police uh, uh, or uh, police who have, you know, um, prejudices like our society. We're talking about completely controlled police states. So if that's something you're not familiar with, look into that. And that will give us an opportunity particularly to focus this on uh, other countries other than just our own. Okay. Say a prayer, and then um, we will be done. You're welcome to hang out, talk, uh, do what you like. Lord, it's in our heart to... Um, well, you put it in our heart uh, to care about people and to love people and to change uh, just the injustice we see around us. Help us to remember who cares about that the most. Um, to not get our identity and our um, sense of success um, from how much we care, um, but to know that we can never possibly care as much as you do uh, for what you've created and can never want more than you want the kind of change uh, that we're advocating and that we're, kind of, we're working towards. Help us to work with you, to know what you're doing, be on board with it, be willing to change, uh, to hear tough news and tough, see tough visions, uh, and to be in it for the long haul. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. 
We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.